BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. I'm here with my colleague, David Tainter. Hey there, Josh. Uh, we're back after a, a week off. and we're That's right. Yeah, we're doing this episode in the midst of, you know, you, may, you will probably know more by the time that you hear this, because... Uh, as I speak, it is 2.35 uh, on on Tuesday afternoon. We have the initial reports that Michael Cohen has made a plea deal yeah. with prosecutors Southern District kind of been of New in York. The, it's sort of been in the background swirling for a little bit, but it seems today's the day. Yeah, and, and what is odd is that it, it at least seems that they're saying that there's no cooperation deal, just a plea, which on its face is really hard to figure. <laughs> right. So there must be more to the story yeah. that we're, that we're going to learn. We also have, uh, there are signs, although no, you never know, that the Manafort jury is, is getting close to, right. to finalizing its work. We're in the fourth week of the trial. It's sort of hard to remember life before, yeah. <laughs> before this case. Um, and the jury is on their fourth day of, de- of deliberations. It sounds like they are pretty much in agreement on I don't know, 17 of the 18 counts, That's but they're, they're stuck like. on one right. one thing. And just to give our, 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 our listeners a, a sense of this, when when David says it's it's hard to know what it was like before, <laughs> we have, you know, we're a very small organization. We have just over 20 people in the total, uh, you know, the total company. And we have uh, two reporters, one who is technically an editor, but in this case operating as as a reporter, who are who are working the trial, who are down there each day doing some trading off. Uh, we have uh, a, a rotation of our editors to kind of, if anything happens at a given moment, one goes right to them. You're right. So it's it's it has, in a sense, like almost kind of fifty percent of our of our workforce yeah, has exactly. been on this, on there this trial. Pay, pay phones involved and all sorts of, uh, yeah, you know, antiquated technology. Yeah. Too. And there's, there's all this kind of funny stuff about, about the courthouse in the Eastern district of Virginia where reporters, or I guess anybody is not allowed to take in electronics. Um, and so you've got this thing where there's like one pay phone, there that when something happens, all the reporters rush out <laughs> and they don't have their cell phones because they right. have to surrender them. And it's a whole it's a whole thing. Listen, we have a a a very cool interview um, uh, for this episode. We talked to John Dean, who is, as as many of you know, uh, one of the one of the central figures in the Watergate scandal. And, you know, uh, President Trump doing his doing his part to kind of do you know schoolhouse rock kind of you know <laughs> bring everybody up to date on right. history from decades ago where he actually name checked John Dean yeah. over the weekend RIP his mentions yeah it, although John exactly. Dean's probably not even on Twitter but anyways I don't know I think I think he might be John John is uh, John is a, a kind of a tech savvy <laughs> yeah, uh, I got that guy yeah. yeah so anyway we're going to talk to John Dean we're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about the Watergate scandal. We are going to talk about uh, sort of parallels with Trump and things that are things that are, you know, things that are the same, things that are different. There's one kind of really interesting part where 
he discusses how there are certain things that he felt confident that Richard Nixon would never do that he suspects that Trump will do sort of, you know, on the way out, you know, as things get right. bad. And that's kind of saying a lot since yeah. he's, you know, since we Dean know what was, happened with Nixon, right? Yeah, exactly. It didn't, it, it wasn't exactly a smooth process. Right. Um, anyway, just uh, really quickly, let me mention uh, Grady's cold brew iced coffee. Uh, one in New York's favorite cold brew, New York City's See, this is this is where you can see this is like a really a fresh read because I actually bobbled Hot off the press. Try again. One in a New York City's favorite cold brew, head to Grady'sColdBrew.com for free shipping on all their greatest hits. Grady's famous coffee concentrate is cold brewed, delivering the strongest, smoothest, most refreshing iced coffee on the market. Using a special blend of Indonesian and Ethiopian beans and chicory imported from France. Grady's has a touch of natural sweetness without any added sugar. Grady's is independently owned and operated and has been brewing in New York City since 2011. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. All right. So, uh, as I mentioned, uh, John Dean was the White House counsel uh, in the Nixon administration uh, during the kind of the key Watergate stuff. He was part of the cover up and then basically turned evidence, turned state's evidence. He, as, uh, he eventually went to the Senate because he felt and rightly that the Nixon Justice Department was basically not independent of Nixon. So he's one of these uh, rare people who, and he was very young at the time, so he's still uh, not only with us, but active and writing books and giving public commentary. And he just has a, a very unique perspective, which is really key to know now. So let's talk to John Dean. John, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. You have this unique role in history that all of our listeners are aware of. And over the decades, you have periods where it it becomes more and more salient to things that are happening in the present moment. And we are in a period of, of, uh, I'm not sure, unique salience, but very high salience. It, It also becomes less and less known. As history passes. I, I guess that is true. Well, that, that leads me to what I was going to ask as my first question. As, as you suggest, time passes, and you have certainly many people who have no lived experience of what happened in Watergate, and even a number of a, a, a decent amount of the population that is not that familiar with it. So tell us about your role in the Watergate scandal. Well, let's, let's start with what I think is a misunderstood concept when, they, when there's a reference to Watergate. Water, I first noticed a pretty good definition of Watergate uh, in about 1974 in a, in a local Los Angeles bookstore, a new dictionary, defined it as abuse of political power occurring during the presidency of Richard Nixon. And that I think that's good because... So many people think it's a bungle burglary followed by a cover-up. And all that is, is is the events that gave the scandal its name. And it morphed into much more, uh, principally because of the uncovering of Nixon's abuses of power. 
So it's really a, a story about abuses of presidential power and how the Senate and the House dealt with it. Now, back to your question, though, is my role. Uh, initially, uh, I don't think anybody at the, at the Nixon White House had advanced knowledge there was going to be a break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters. And it was actually the second break-in, and I'm not aware of anybody who was receiving intelligence from the first. They were trying to bug the chairman's office, Larry O'Brien, and get copies of documents that could be compromising. But the burglars were so bungled, they couldn't even find the office of the of the chairman, Larry O'Brien. <laughs> uh, they went back in a second time, and that's when they were arrested, to try to correct the, the misplacement of the bug. Uh, that was their principal mission. Got it. So what, what happened afterwards is because the people who had organized the break-in, fellow Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt, they had earlier worked at the Nixon White House. And while working at the Nixon White House, a set of highly classified papers that were later dubbed the Pentagon Papers because they were a study that was performed by the Pentagon uh, to study the origins of the war in Vietnam. That document was leaked by Daniel Ellsberg. And as a result of that, uh, the White House insanely ordered a break-in of Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office trying to get information about what else Ellsberg had done and what they might find in those files to discredit him. Well, Watergate brought those two events together because uh, Lydian Hunt, who organized the Watergate break-in, had used the same people at the, at the Ellsberg break-in, and they were, after Watergate, in the D.C. jail. Uh, when I've studied Watergate over the years, and, and not by choice, but by necessity, uh, because people have tried to mischaracterize it and distort it, and uh, apologists of Nixon have tried to make it something other than what it really was, uh, I, I know a great deal about what happened uh, after the fact, uh, particularly because Nixon taped all of his conversations. But anyway, I, there are different motives. Nixon becomes involved in the cover-up because he's worried about his attorney general, John Mitchell, who he is sure, uh, having left the post of attorney general to run his re-election campaign, has authorized this, this uh, break-in. And he's correct in that assumption. Haldeman, the chief of staff, and Ehrlichman, the top domestic advisor, former White House counsel, had the job before I did, uh, he is worried because uh, Ehrlichman has personally authorized in writing uh, the option of breaking in Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office, writing on the approval slip, if done with your assurance that it can't be traced to the White House, uh, which would made it traceable directly to <laughs> Ehrlichman. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. They, uh, that was why he was worried. So anyway, all these things come together in Watergate and result in this, this 
effort to cover it up, which is as ill-conceived as the two break-ins that were involved. So that's it in a in a big nutshell. So as as you just mentioned, you were a White House counsel um, while this was happening. So you are, you know, as it were, involved in both sides of the scandal over the course of the scandal's history. Tell us about that. Well, you know, the White House counsel was then, as it it pretty much is today, a middle-level staff position. There have been a couple counsel who have risen above, but not many. Most of them, uh, for example, uh, when Abder Mikva left the, uh, had been in Congress, was appointed to the D.C. Court of Appeals, and later took a, a, a post as White House counsel, once said to me an event after he left the job, he said, I wish I'd have talked to somebody like you to find out I was giving up my lifetime judgeship for a middle-level White House staff job. Uh, right. <laughs> so you don't sit on the hand on the right side of the president every morning and advise him on everything that has a legal implication. Uh, typically, a president either calls on you uh, or doesn't call on you, and you report to the president, typically through the chief of staff. Uh, when I, when I was involved in Watergate, I I I never had any dealings with Richard Nixon. Uh, but one until eight months into Watergate, uh, after uh, in, in mid-September when they indicted the original burglars, uh, I w- when uh, Haldeman had called me over to come in the Oval Office while he was there, and it was kind of a thank you that not more than Howard Hunt and Gordon Liddy and the people arrested inside the Watergate had been indicted, uh, and it's not until. After Nixon is reelected in fe- late February of 1973, that Nixon starts dealing with me directly. Um, I don't think anybody wanted to get involved in any criminal activity at the Watergate, but uh, the, 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 one of the first recommendations I made after meeting with Gordon Liddy and him confessing to me what what had happened that he'd made a mistake in using the chief of security at the reelection committee. And using men who he used in California for the for that break-in, uh, the Ellsberg break-in, uh, I came back and told Ehrlichman that, and I also told him, you know, John, I'm not a criminal lawyer. To my knowledge, you don't have a background in criminal lawyer law. I have nobody on my staff with that, and we got, and and this is dangerous. Well, he didn't. I know today why he didn't want anything to do with it because he was in deep trouble. And he wasn't going right, to so tell he anybody. Was in on it, as it were. Right. Right. Uh, now, l- l- when did when did l- when did you have that conversation with Liddy? Like about on you know, the ni- r- on, on, on June nineteenth. Uh, I never even bothered to testify to a lot of my a lot of the things that that came back to me later when I went through all the Nixon tapes. Uh, the last book I did called the Nixon Defense. Uh, was something I thought about doing. I thought I could do it by just selecting certain Nixon tapes I knew had not been published and ended up having to, first of all, catalog all of Nixon's Watergate conversations, discovering there were about a 1,000 of them, finding about another 600 that nobody outside the archives had ever listened to, uh, and then transcri- transcribing or retranscribing uh, what had been 
what was available. The only decent tapes uh, that were in existence before I did my project were those that had been used at the trial of Haldeman and Ehrlichman, where they had listened to them themselves and made corrections. Uh, so I have about I I had based the the Nixon defense on about a thousand conversations. It took me four and a half years with a team of grad students uh, to do it. It was just a huge task. Had I known going in, I would have never done it. <laughs> but uh, we have it now, and in you know I I have a much better understanding of Watergate as a result of doing all those recorded conversations. Let me let me ask you this. Now, this is sort of like a, a lawyer in a trial. You're never supposed to ask a question you don't know the, the answer to. But this is going to be an example of that. My recollection, but I, th- this may be wrong, so that's why I'm, why I'm asking you, is that a lot, you know, Haldeman, Ehrlich, a lot of these guys were people who'd been with Nixon for a long time. Yes. Bef- even before he was elected president. My recollection is that's not the case with you. You were a, a sort of a young, impressive lawyer and, and obviously must have had some entree into Republican politics to get that job. But you weren't a, you know, a longtime loyalist, someone who had a long history with Richard, that is, is that, that Richard is Nixon. Cor- is that correct? That is correct, Josh. Uh I had I had not worked in the Nixon campaign. Uh, it was right after the Nixon election. I only recent years found out how this happened. Uh, I had a call from the, the Deputy Attorney General designate uh, Dick Kleindienst saying that the Attorney General designate John Mitchell wanted me to come up to New York and talk to him about a job. Was I interested? And I said sure. Uh, so I flew up and they offered me the post of Associate Deputy Attorney General for Legislation. I had worked on the Hill and knew my way around up there, uh, and it was a great job. And it was because uh, neither Mitchell nor Kleindienst liked to go over to the White House to do background briefers. They always liked to be on the record, uh, but there was yet a lot to explain about what the department was doing particularly in the legislative area, I found myself going over to the White House quite regularly and got to know the, the staff over there. So when Ehrlichman became, he had been White House counsel, uh, when he became assistant to the president for domestic affairs, uh, they asked me to come over to be White House counsel. Uh, I, I knew at the time that the, the, the job, I was getting the title, but Ehrlichman would keep, in a sense, much of the post. And that indeed was the fact. Uh, I, we did my my archive at the Nixon Library, that's controlled by the National Archives, is one of the largest. Uh, so we we did all the grunt work, and uh, Ehrlichman really remained counsel. But I do start dealing with Nixon at the end of February of '73, uh, after he's been reelected. He knows I've been reporting uh, what I can find out about what's going on. Uh, to uh, Haldeman and Ehrlichman, and the reason that I'm integral is because when Ehrlichman learned, excuse me, when Haldeman, let me start all over, when Mitchell learns that Ehrlichman has sent Liddy to the re-election committee and the guy is a screwball, uh, <laughs> he gets really upset. I think that John Mitchell originally had planned to take the heat and, and say, listen, this happened on my watch. 
because he advised Haldeman uh, right after the, the, they learned of the arrest to keep the White House out of this, uh, and he would handle it. Well, when he learned that Liddy and Hunt had done this break-in at Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office for, uh, for, for Ehrlichman, and the same two of the men who'd been used in that job were in the D.C. jail, uh, he blew a gasket. And he already had a strained relationship with Ehrlichman, but by the time this progressed into about two weeks, they could barely talk to each other. They both trusted me, so they communicated through me. And as a result, I would end up as the linchpin of the cover-up, just passing information back and forth. Uh, Put me right in the middle of it all. So point being here that that if it would have just been the the break-in at the Watergate Hotel, uh, um, that might have been manageable that that Mitchell could have whether he would have taken personal responsibility you know at least sort of you know under my watch he, that it could have been insulated but they quickly learned that not just that this other break in had happened but that they'd used the same people and some of them were already in jail and it just that was a much taller proposition that's right and and, and listening to the tapes uh, Josh it, it's very clear that everybody has seems to have a different motive for becoming involved in the cover-up, and there's never even any consideration of cutting the, the re-election committee loose and saying, you handle this. Uh, Mitchell uh, uh, is of concern to Nixon, uh, and that comes through in the that first week of conversations. Uh, there's one conversation that took me forever to get, where, where Nixon goes to the residence uh, the day... Uh, it's on the it's on the 19th or 20th, right after he gets back. To, the arrest occur in on the 7th, June 17th of 1972. Uh, as I say, within 48 hours, Nixon calls Mitchell, uh, but he does it from the resident's phone. It's not recorded, and then he goes back over to his executive office building office and calls uh, Haldeman to tell him of his conversation with Mitchell. And I, I, no one had ever tried to rec- record that conversation or transcribe that conversation that was partially recorded, but there was some kind of interference on the, on the line. But I was able to pick up a combination of the room bug that Nixon had put in and Haldeman's <laughs> notes and put together, you know, it's clear that Nixon is concerned about Mitchell. Uh, and, and why so? He's convinced he wouldn't be president but for Mitchell. Uh, I know this from other facts I've put together over the years, that when when Nixon becomes a New York attorney, uh, the firm he joins just at that time is merging with Mitchell's firm. And Mitchell is the managing partner and makes it very easy for Nixon. Uh, he has He's a bond lawyer, uh, Mitchell is. He has contacts all over the country, and when Nixon decides he wants to test the water, uh, uh, Mitchell is able to put him in touch with local politicians that would far exceed what was even in the files of the Republican National Committee. Uh, And then he uh, gets him to take over the campaign. So, as I say, he he convinces 
Mitchell to come to Washington because Mitchell wants to stay in New York and make money. Uh, but he gets him to come. He's, I think he's the first attorney general who never had an FBI background. Uh, and it, he puts him into a lot of positions that most attorneys general don't get involved in. So that there, there's that concern comes through in the tapes very quickly. And as I say, I now, I now know why Haldeman and Ehrlichman, because of the Ellsberg break-in, were concerned. Now, are, are you saying that Nixon was concerned that he wouldn't remain loyal if, if he tried to... If, no, no, if he no. Got in he trouble, just or? didn't want him embarrassed. Just oh, okay. Want he wanted to protect him. Wanted to... Yes, protect got him. Got it. Okay. Okay. So, it, well, okay, so let me ask you. So, you say that? Uh, not you say. You you told us that um, that in in February seventy three is when you start working directly, basically with with Nixon. Right. What what what's happening then that that drives that change? Well, what happened is Nixon was overwhelmingly reelected. He he carries every state excepting Massachusetts and the District of Columbia. It's one of the great landslide victories. Uh, and he wants to reinvigorate his second term and do so by, one, a major reorganization of the executive branch, and secondly, a repopulation where he would move people from, say, uh, the State Department to uh, the Defense Department or wherever. Uh, the, the high-level presidential appointees. So he sends Haldeman and Ehrlichman to Camp David, where he, too, goes, and they just kind of camp out up there and start working this all out. Uh, and it's at that time he wants to keep Haldeman and Ehrlichman focused on the second term and not being tied down by Watergate. And he knows that they're, that I have been reporting to them and and where I got my information was from the lawyers representing people at the re-election committee. And contrary to what was popular belief at the time that I uh, was getting it all from the FBI, uh, that's just not true. Uh, Pat Gray, who was the acting director of, of the FBI, didn't have a clue what was happening. In fact, they called him three-day Gray because he was only in the office about three days a week. Uh, generally Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays, uh, because he was traveling to every field office, giving the same speech, kind of running for the office of director of the FBI. It was bizarre. Uh, Ehrlichman was beside himself. Uh, that his, uh, that's who, because Ehrlichman was very responsible for placing Gray over there. But anyway, I, 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 I start dealing with Nixon because he doesn't want the whole thing to tie up Haldeman and Ehrlichman so they can stay on the second term. So in a, in a sense, he's trying to insult, I mean, he has big plans for the second term where he's really going to sort of make his mark on the federal government and sort of this reorganization. In a sense, your involvement is he's trying to kind of insulate it. Like, let's not, like, I don't want my, my kind of, my, my, you know, big actors tie down on this Watergate thing. So I'm going to bring John in and he'll deal with it and kind of free these other guys up. That's that's a fair summation. Uh, he uh, he just doesn't want to tie up Haldeman and Ehrlichman, and he writes very flattering things about me in his his uh, private diary that he wishes he'd actually started dealing with me earlier and what have you. Uh, 
and I at that I kind of went through three phases, Josh. The, the the first phase is after it happens, I'm able to put together very quickly what happened because I was aware of Liddy's insanity. I had blocked it <laughs> once before and actually tried to block his water, so-called Watergate plans when I'd been asked to come over by uh, Mitchell and Magruder to a meeting in Mitchell's office where Liddy's going to lay out his plans. I thought they were insane. And I, I told Holloman as much. He said, you stay away from it. Well, obviously somebody hadn't stayed away from it, and they'd gone forward. I'd earlier blocked And, and by the plans, you mean the plans being the break-ins, all the kind of the crazy stuff that we know about. Yeah, uh, you know, okay. hi- hiring prostitutes to seduce the leaders of the Democratic Party, having chase planes uh, that would intercept ground-air communications, uh, wiretapping, uh, kidnapping anti-war demonstrations, just insanity uh, that he was proposing. And I I realized Mitchell wasn't going to buy into this, and I I was somewhat somewhat shocked. Uh, Magruder later told me that uh, after Liddy pared down his plans, uh, he took them down to Florida and got Mitchell to approve them. And so, the, you know, there was no doubt in my mind, based on what Magruder had told me after uh, the arrest at the DNC, that it had happened. So anyway, I, I, you know, I would talk, I would principally learn what was going on from Henry Peterson, the head of the criminal division of the Department of Justice. I, I had been a... Uh, a fairly senior person at the Justice Department before I became White House counsel at a pretty young age, in my late 20s, uh, and and I had good rapport with those people. So I, I was able to keep myself informed that way, as well as through the lawyers representing the re-election committee who were talking to the lawyers representing Hunt, Liddy, and the Cuban-Americans who'd been arrested in the DNC, so I would just I would just gather up information and pass it on to uh, uh, to Haldeman and Ehrlichman. But as I say, Nixon wanted to take them out of the loop, so I started going directly to him. There, there, there are three phases for me uh, that I now understand in hindsight. The first phase, I just think I can help my colleagues who have found themselves in a mess without getting myself in any trouble. Uh, and I, I believe I did that. Uh, it's not until after the election I realized, hey, we're all in trouble. Uh, <laughs> what happened is Colson, Chuck Colson comes down to my office with a, a tape of a conversation with Hunt who makes it very clear that, the, he, that he's upset, he's not being paid in a timely manner, being paid more than he is being paid, and that it's essential that he be paid because uh, he's distributing it to others, and it's a quid pro quo. And that's what forced right. me uh, to open the law books and say, what are we doing? Uh, and and uh, that's when I realized we're in a conspiracy to obstruct justice. Now, one might have thought the reaction would be, holy cow, let's run from this. To the contrary, that's when I did the stupidest things I could have done. I never really understood it until a few years ago uh, when I was reading the work of Daniel Kahneman. Uh, are you familiar with that psychologist? 
I am, yeah. Uh, he's written a book called uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, but his work on, on, on biases and the way we frame our decisions uh, explained to me what had happened that I, like many people, got in myself in what's called, he calls, uh, the loss frame uh, as opposed to a gain frame. Uh, when, when we have attractive options and everything's attractive, we will tend to be, uh, uh, take the most attractive. For example, uh, you're, you're going to get either 1000 or $10,000 uh, for taking some step that you really almost can't lose at. You'll go for the 10000 you reverse that, however, into the loss frame, and you you have to uh, you're likely to uh, get one thousand, uh, lose a thousand or ten thousand. Uh, you'll likely, because you're losing, go for the ten thousand. Uh, pick that option. Uh, this being the option that keeps casinos operating, people continue to double down as they're right. losing. Uh, right, right. So anyway, uh, basically the inability to cut your losses. So yeah. Like I'm in trouble, and I'm going to accept that I'm in trouble, and, and kind of take and the you heat take as opposed a, to you getting take deeper. Irrational risk, and that's what right. I did. Right. And I, I wanted to make the cover up work. Well, that lasts for a little while for me, from about, uh, from after the election until uh, late March of '73. Uh, I'm clearly in the lost frame. Uh, that's where I did the things I regret having done and never really understood why in the world am I doing this other than to make this cover-up work. We had to make it work. Uh, but I realized by uh, after Hunt sent a message directly to me on March 19th that he wanted another $120,000 yesterday, and if he didn't, he was going to have seamy things to say about John Ehrlichman. Uh, I took the message to Ehrlichman, who played very cool, like, well, I'm not going to do anything about that. Uh, I realized today that Ehrlichman picked up the phone and, and called all the people who were involved in the so-called Ellsberg break-in and said, brace yourself, we got to get ready to deal with Hunt breaking. Uh, he was very concerned about it. But uh, uh, to, to my surprise also, uh, he'd never told Nixon about the Ellsberg break-in. Uh, and when I did, Nixon was really quite surprised to, to hear about it. I think it made him understand why Ehrlichman uh, was as deeply involved as, as he was. Uh, but uh, so that sort of the, 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 that that event got me out of the lost frame. And by this time, I'm starting to have regular dealings with Nixon, and so I try to go in and convince him to end the cover-up, knowing that if, if he says this has got to stop, it's going to stop. Uh, that's when I gave him the so-called cancer on the presidency uh, conversation, about an hour and 50 minutes of nothing but everything, here's everything that can go wrong. Uh, I thought I could convince him to end it. I failed. And that's the day I, I think I really met Nixon. He wanted me to write a bogus report that would clear everybody, in other words, to, just to, to lie about it. I refused to write that report. Uh, and in fact, that's when I told him I'm hiring a criminal lawyer who knows what, what he's doing, 
and what we're doing, because I think we're making terrible mistakes. Uh, so at, at that, what, what was the point at which, now, obviously, and this is, this is what kind of brings us to the present, that it, there was a tweet a couple days ago from, the, <laughs> from President Trump identifying, A, identifying you as a rat, but what was interesting was, you know, it, 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 the kind of thing you, you expect in, uh, you know, wiretaps of mafiosos. You know, the guy who goes to the cops is the bad guy. The, the loyalists are the, are the good guys. So, well, you know, I did, my reaction to that was, is first of all, like, he didn't understand what had happened in Watergate, uh, that I had gone down. In fact, I, I dug out some tapes as a result of doing my book. I had discovered that, you know, I, I, it was actually on tape that I had told my superiors I was hiring a lawyer and going to the prosecutors. And Ehrlichman tells Nixon that at one point and said, Dean is doing the smartest thing he can do, is he's going down and meeting with the prosecutors and giving them the appearance he's cooperating. Well, I was giving more than the appearance I was cooperating. I was cooperating on a very guarded basis because... My lawyer and I were not sure the prosecutors could handle anything as big as Watergate, and I think we were correct in that assumption. Uh, in fact, what now? By, did you have a did you have a concern there that that because it was so big, and the prospect of something so big would would be scary to prosecutors for you know a lot of human reasons, a lot of good reasons that they might just say, eh, this Dean guy's admitted to a lot of stuff, let's just indict him and, and, and sort of handle it that way. Did you have, was that what, what's your concern? What's in, what, what I didn't know at the time and didn't learn for some time, that uh, the, uh, one of the two senior prosecutors had been the office mate of my lawyer at the Department of Justice for a number of years, and they both held each other in very high esteem. Uh, that was Seymour Glanzer, who my lawyer, Charlie Schaffer, thought could probably handle this. It was his, uh, his, his co-assistant U.S. attorney, who was a little bit more senior than him uh, for political reasons, not for uh, experience reasons, uh, Earl Silbert, who worried me most that this might be beyond Earl's capability, uh, who was fairly politically ambitious, to someday be U.S. attorney himself. Uh, anyway, Charlie, my lawyer, worked an arrangement where they committed themselves not to repeat anything I told them to the main Department of Justice because I knew what had happened as soon as it went to Maine Justice, it would end up at the White House. It would go to Henry Peterson. Peterson would tell the Attorney General Kleindienst. Kleindienst would tell uh Haldeman or Ehrlichman or the president. Uh, and that's exactly what did happen. They, they decide they cannot hold the information I'm giving them. And so on April 15th, they break the, the, the arrangement. And that's when I broke the arrangement with them and went to the Senate uh, because it was clearly beyond uh, their capabilities. And that's why we needed a special prosecutor uh, to, to handle it. And I would, uh, uh, of course, uh, testify in, in full. I, there are you know, a couple items I 
I forgot, but I, I remembered most everything. Uh, even though I was denied access to my files, I, I really used the uh, a, a book of clippings from the uh, Washington Post that was had, had been the only real accurate newspaper to cover Watergate uh, when it was all unfolding. It had largely been ignored by the New York Times and other papers. Uh, so I just used the post to sort of trigger my memory of what was I doing uh, about the time of a story. or and, and very often I discovered the post would pick up a story about a month after it happened. Uh, but, uh, but it nevertheless uh, served as a pretty good uh, uh, stimulant for my memory. So, and, and, and for our listeners, how did you... How did your exit from the White House take place? I advised the president that that Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and yours truly should all uh, leave the White House because it was going to uh, be a problem at some point. And he he stewed. In fact, that those are the most difficult conversations to first transcribe and then digest and boil down because he goes over and over and over the same thing. And when Haldeman and Ehrlichman are in there, he, they all come to the same point that I would make a wonderful scapegoat for the cover-up and Mitchell would make the scapegoat for the break-in. Uh, I actually got wind of that at one point, and uh, I, I never talked to the news media when I was at the White House, but I had my, I dictated a, about two or three sentences uh, to my secretary and had her read it to the AP, the Washington Post, and the New York Times, which was really a message to Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and Nixon that if they were thinking I was interested in being a scapegoat, they had selected the wrong person. Uh, I'd already told Haldeman, who had, I had come up with the idea that we should all go to the grand jury. I, I, I thought, you know, the way it, it was still a, a partial cover-up, because at one point I have one foot in the White House and one foot out, uh, but I thought at least that will stop the cover-up, uh, but it will happen behind closed doors. That's one of the things that today bothers me about how much of the Trump uh, inquiry is being handled by Mueller. We're, we'll really never know uh, most of this information that is being uh, assimilated and, and gathered by the grand jury. Grand juries are sealed. Uh, there have been a few exceptions, and in the District of Columbia is one where judges, uh, long after the fact, have released that grand jury testimony uh, for historical reasons and because of the historical importance of it, they have found that a basis to break that uh, uh, seal of silence for grand juries, but it's very rare. Uh, but anyway, in the short term, uh, that's what worries me. There's no equivalent to the Senate Watergate Committee. Uh, an impeachment proceeding theoretically could bring a lot of this information out, uh, but that's one of the interesting things about Watergate is the history of what happened uh, is all there. While you sometimes have to 
read it carefully and read it all uh, to know that people like Haldeman and Ehrlichman just went up there and lied, uh, and they would all later get indicted, indicted for uh, those lies that the Watergate special prosecutor thought he could prove uh, fairly easily beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, so you have to get things in context. Uh, but it is a rather complete history of a, of a scandal and a presidency. And, and just for what you were mentioning there, if I'm understanding this correctly, m- much later you're, you're listening to tapes and reading documents where they're kind of saying, let's, let's let John Dean take the fall for this, and sort of hearing that, you know, that's a certain kind of <laughs> experience, but that you had, you obviously didn't have access to the tapes, but you got wind contemporaneously that this was the plan, and so you kind of put out this statement making clear, like, you're not going along with that. Right, I did. And there was a headline in the Post, uh, Dean refuses to be scapegoat, something of that effect. Uh, the, 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 I, I have been forced by those who have tried to write false accounts of Watergate to get back into it. I have a low tolerance for uh, that kind of activity. In fact, there was one book that was put out that tried to involve my wife in this whole mess and say, really, it was all just a big sex scandal, that the Democratic National Committee was the branch office of a, of a uh, prostitution ring. We just say it was absurd. It sounds, uh, you know, it sounds the like FBI... a, an earlier a proto Pizzagate sort of <laughs> what yes. we have. What we have these days. The, 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 this book never did explain how the FBI missed this uh, rather significant fact, uh, but it did so. It told its story just by ignoring history. So I, 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 that was the first time I had to bring a defamation lawsuit, and it took ten years. Uh, they decided they would defend. The only way they could defend it was try to outspend me. And after they'd spent $15 million, I'd spent a, several of them uh, myself, uh, did I uh, find them, they realized that they, they were going to lose their entire publishing firm. I didn't want to own a publishing firm. So then we entered into settlement talks, and I got a satisfactory settlement. But I... Uh, I also used that that lawsuit uh, that, where the discovery went on for 10 years to open up files relating to Watergate that probably never would have been opened in my lifetime. A lot of the material from the Watergate Special Prosecution Office, uh, just lots of things that never would have been available publicly. So with that, that's another reason we have so much of the Watergate record available. Now, let me ask you, uh, Lanny Davis, a few days ago, said, and I I sort of, when I heard this, you know, Lanny is a, a, he's a lawyer, but he specializes in in the, I guess we, you know, the the public practice of law, by which I mean, like, messaging and, and stuff like that. Now, he said that he was talking to you relative to his current, um, representing Michael Cohen, and obviously that kind of everybody's sort of spider senses got got uh, got activated because at least people think that there's some similarity between the 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 roles that the two of you played, although obviously they're very 
very at, at a minimum very different in various ways. Is there any truth to that? Have you have have you been talking with him about that case? Uh, yes, I have talked to Lanny. Uh, I I got to know Lanny uh, very well uh, during the Clinton Lewinsky uh, episode. He and I spent countless hours on uh, the the sets at MSNBC uh, waiting for anchors, uh, people like uh, primarily Brian Williams, sometimes Tom Brokaw. Uh, We were anchor buddies, and an anchor buddy is somebody the anchor turns to when he has no reporter in the field to to call on and doesn't really have any thoughts in his own mind, so he turns to uh, an anchor buddy to uh, talk about what's going on, so you have to keep yourself current. So I, Lanny and I had lengthy and many conversations in the uh, in the green room at MSNBC or on the set. Uh, I spent more time, Josh, in Washington during the Clinton Lewinsky episode than I have in the entire time since I've le- left Washington. Uh, I, I guess I've spent probably probably close to 100 days uh, there when you put it all together. Sometimes, you know, I was there a month uh, solid during the uh, House and Senate proceedings. Uh, So, yes, uh, when when Lanny was retained by Michael Cohen, he, uh, what he did is he wanted to refresh his recollection, uh, not of of sort of the details of my testimony, but the processes I had gone through uh, where I decided, you know, he he saw a situation where it was potential that that it might be smart for uh, Michael Cohen to plead uh, and to work a deal. Uh, I I originally hired my first lawyer, my only lawyer, uh, Charlie Schaffer, uh, I was looking for somebody to handle a plea negotiation for me because I was I was prepared to take whatever punishment for whatever mistakes I had made. And I went to the, this uh, very experienced uh, uh, former prosecutor, uh, then defense attorney, out of the Southern District of New York. He'd actually also been uh, uh, Attorney General Robert Kennedy's special assistant, so trusted that uh, Bobby Kennedy sent uh, my former lawyer, Charlie, over to the Warren Commission to find out what was really going on, Put it, placed him on the staff of the Warren Commission where he sort of back channels to Bobby Kennedy. Uh, huh. a, a really interesting guy. We just lost Charlie a, 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 about a year and a half ago. He went in for heart, sur- heart surgery and never really recovered from it. Uh, so it was very sad because he wasn't that old, uh, just in his mid-70s. Uh, and that's not that old to me these days. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, I have talked to Lanny. I have explained the, the processes we went through, uh, you know, the sort of the politics of it. The uh, I, I have no idea what kind of knowledge uh, that uh, Michael Cohn has. But I emphasized that, that I said one of the things that was sort of surprised me 
was that Nixon, in hindsight, uh, did not feel my Watergate testimony per se was as threatening to him as the rest of my testimony, which he said was so deadly they knew they never could recover from it. And what I did, he thought I, the Democrats had gotten me to do this. Not true. This was, I, just tried, I, I just tried to explain the context in which Watergate had happened, that I, while I hadn't been involved in a lot of these things, I'd gotten wind of, the, of, uh, of everything from a, an effort to firebomb the Brookings Institute in Washington so they could break in the safe to uh, the Ellsberg break-in. I mean, just all those absurd things that I inserted in my Senate testimony so people could understand uh, Watergate was just a, a, a part of a pattern and practice of Nixon. And Nixon, as he writes in his memoir, said, uh, that's the testimony we could never recover from. Uh, that it wasn't my water because I I didn't really learn about Watergate and, and his deep involvement in virtually every phase of the cover up. Haldeman at some point clears with him. I didn't learn that until I transcribed all of the Nixon Watergate conversation. Now let me ask you this because one one of the obviously we don't know sort of what is in the black box of the Russia probe and. Uh, President Trump's potential involvement, but y- you have a uh, maybe not unique, but a, you know, very limited number of people who have been involved in something like this. And one of the one of the questions that people are always asking is, you know, people who seem like people who are in the White House, who seem like. Uh, you know, maybe they wouldn't. Maybe they wouldn't be there at all if they were really upstanding people. But at least people who you would think would are somewhat upstanding or were, you know, uh, semi-legit people before they got involved with 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 Donald Trump. And and to say and I put it that way only to say that at least my impression is that Trump and his longtime loyalists, there's not even a sense of right and wrong. You just do whatever. You know, whatever make whatever is useful at a, at a given moment, but it, as you've described it, you know, you get involved, you hear some things, you're trying almost not saying you were in a technical sense, but almost kind of in a defense lawyer mode for a while, trying to help people, you know, uh, navigate a jam, and suddenly you find out you're part of that jam. How? Is there anything you can tell us about what you, from your experience, imagine the thought process of maybe the current White House counsel or other people who are there who might be close to a lot of this stuff and the thought process in in their head, which is, uh, you know, that that I forget the, the term you use, but, you know, the. The the, uh, the inability not to cut your losses, the sense that you, maybe you can help, and then at a, at a certain point, the drive for self preservation. What can you what can you shed on that question for us, based on your experience? Well, you know, Josh, one of the uh, one of the interesting things is that uh, it's been rather disappointing to watch the people that Trump has hired for his White House. There are people who know almost nothing about Washington, D.C., 
and about how the federal government operates. Uh, probably one of the greatest weaknesses of uh, Nixon's very able staff uh, with halt, people like Haldeman and Ehrlichman is they didn't know Washington. Uh, you know, I had been there. I was a, I, other than Nixon himself, I probably uh, knew how Washington operated as well as anybody on that White House staff. Uh, there have been none of those kinds of people to join the Nixon, or excuse me, the, uh, the Trump White House. He's, he has brought in people who are first and foremost loyalists. Now, that's important to a president, of course, and having to uh, breach that loyalty was very painful for me, and I told Nixon exactly what I was doing as I did his superiors, and they didn't discourage me, uh, which was interesting. Uh, is that when you said that before? I was a little curious about that. Did they? Is your sense that they didn't really believe what you were saying? No, they didn't believe I would tell the truth about what had happened because it was oh, so self, it was so it's self-incriminating. Uh, they, so okay, they, so they, they, they said, figure sort of know, like he's wink, a smart, wink. Yeah, he's a smart guy. He's not going to walk walk himself down. Well, I was at the point that I I just knew the cover up had to end, uh, and I was just not going to. To rest easy, and if I had to do it, so be it. Uh, I was just determined, and I thought Nixon had countless occasions uh, to get in front of it and sur- and survive uh, and let his presidency f- run its full term. And he did have those opportunities. He just blew it at every single incident. Uh, whether Trump will do that or not, I don't know. Uh, but I, his presidency. It's going to be deeply threatened as this all unravels. So it's been, I've been disappointed with, 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 with who he's put in there because they're not stupid people, but they're, they're people who just have zero experience that he needs so, so desperately. Uh, uh, Rudy Giuliani, Rudy, Rudy wouldn't, he, he, he worked at, at the Justice Department, but it's like he's he's blocked and mentally forgotten everything he ever learned about how uh, these things operate. So there's that there's that factor. Uh, you know I, I, I you know it it these are not people who want to be told by anybody uh, you know how things have worked in the past. They ignore history. They don't read it. They I'm sure most of them have zero knowledge of. Watergate, why a lot of things are being repeated is just pure blunder. Uh, they're letting uh, their natural instincts take over rather than learn any of the lessons from the past. So it's been, it's, it's been sad and disquieting. Uh, I must say, Josh, I never worried that Nixon would threaten our democracy. I do worry that Donald Trump does and will continue to threaten our democracy. Had, had Trump found himself in the situation where the Supreme Court said to Nixon, turn over your tapes, even though they're going to cost you your presidency, uh, I, I, you know, I never doubted that Nixon would honor that Supreme Court decision. Now, tell, tell us about that, because you obviously not only knew this man, but knew him in, you know, one of the most 
high stakes, stressful, you know, when the real person comes out. Tell us a little about that. Well, that, that you know, you, that I, you didn't I, I have that doubt. I knew enough about him to know that he had a deep respect for the law and that the fact that this country can only survive and operate under the rule of law. Well, I don't think Trump thinks that way. I think that anything he can get away with, he will get away with. Had he been forced to turn over his tapes, he wouldn't do it. He'd say, I've got the army. You come get me uh, with your marshals. And then, and of course, that wouldn't happen. No, it's um, it's a it's a, but, but so I a scary think, thought. You know, we're we're in for some thrilling days ahead. Uh, no question, no question. Well, we'll see. As 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 you were just saying, and obviously our our listeners will know more by the time they hear this about what's going on with the Cohen thing, because it's at least at least the initial headlines say it's a plea deal, but with no agreement of cooperation. So it's a little, it's a little like there's more to be told there. Um, but I guess we'll we'll we will we will know by the time that we uh, listen to this. John, thank you so much for 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 uh, speaking My with pleasure, us. You and I Josh, have keep doing the good work that you do at Talking Points Memo. Oh, thank you so much. And like I was going to say, you know, I think we've been in touch by in one fashion or another for something like a dozen years. And and I, uh, it's it's it is a a treat and an honor to have. To have the uh, to have your perspective well, it, on it, it, on our history, it's mutual. So I thank you so enjoy much. You and appreciate your work. Thank you so much, and hopefully we can do this again sometime soon. All right, John. Bye bye. All right, bye bye. Okay. Well, as as you can tell, we you know we we went a little long with this interview, but. At least for me, it's just so fascinating hearing all of these details. I, I find it endlessly illuminating and just interesting at a, at a basic level. Yeah, it struck me even when we're not directly kind of comparing his experience to the Trump era. Just implicitly in your, in your mind, you kind of go there and you sort of think about the lessons he learned or his experience and kind of think about how that applies to today. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and just... One of the other things that is very interesting, I mean, obviously, as you could tell from the interview, I, I was that point about, uh, you know, he didn't doubt Nixon would like try to call out the armies, but he, but he, <laughs> but he has no such confidence with Trump. I mean, yeah. there's, you know, there's probably some, uh, you know, retro, maybe some retrospecting sort of smoothing of the edges of, uh, of the story. But that's saying a lot uh, about about where we are right now. The other thing I find fascinating is the way that as he, he didn't say this in any, in any one word, but that there was a lot that he didn't know at the time. And some of that is explained by, you know, there's, there's all these tapes, there's transcripts, there's all these different, you know, notes and diaries and stuff that obviously uh, no one could have access to at the time. But it was also an interesting lesson in the ways that we only understand our own actions over time. And, right. and, and our, our, our And have some distance and space to yeah. process. Yeah, our understanding of, of what we do is never complete and evolves over time. This is fascinating. So anyway, yeah. really hope you enjoyed it. Um, I found it fascinating. A lot of news coming. I think we're going to be back um, with another episode 
uh, later this week because there's so much news going on. We may have uh, our reporters, depending on on when the Manafort trial ends, we may have our reporters who've been in the you know in the courtroom right. this whole time and get a get a debrief. Yeah, we got to let them take a little victory lap on, yeah, the, exactly, on the podcast. Exactly, exactly. So thank you so much, and we will talk to you soon. Talk to you then. Bye. Thanks, David. Bye bye.